Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. I want to take a moment to thank all of our supporters and listeners. We are so close to reaching our goal of funding the show's production costs completely. As you may know, I'm paying out of pocket to be able to bring the powerful messages of survivors and experts to those who need it and want it on a weekly basis. If we could just get another 1% of our weekly listeners to donate just $5 a month, we can ensure the stability of the show moving forward. So every donation makes a huge difference. We've been making some changes to the patron tiers as we wanted to bring some new perks to thank you all for your continued support, especially during this past year. We want to thank our newest members as well as our lasting contributors with a benefit available for all. I'd like to reintroduce Rachel's weekly check-ins. Once a week, you'll find a short audio clip covering anything from what's going on in the world to sharing ideas that I'd like to expand on. These bite-sized clips are just for you, our Patreon subscribers, available to our contributors of any level every Friday on patreon.com. I'm also very excited to bring another perk to one of our tiers. In the upcoming weeks, we're bringing merchandise to our Patreon. You will see some stylish tote bags and cool stickers. Merchandise will be sent out after three months of subscription. Those of you already subscribed, be sure to update your tier by adding your address if you'd like us to send you your merch. When it arrives, feel free to share a picture of our merch on your social media to help spread the message. And don't forget to tag us. Thank you again to our amazing community of generous supporters. We could not do it without you. Hi, everybody. Today on the show, we have part one of my conversation with Dan Shaw. Actually, I should say part three, because we had a two-part conversation a while back on the show. But just to keep it kind of making sense, this is part one of my new conversation with Dan Shaw. Dan is a colleague. He is a licensed clinical social worker and a psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City and in Nyack, New York. He was originally trained as an actor at Northwestern University with the renowned teacher Uta Hagen in New York City. Dan later worked as a missionary for an Indian guru. His eventual recognition of cultic aspects of his organization led him to become an outspoken activist in support of individuals and families traumatically abused in cults. Simultaneous with leaving this group, Dan began his training in the mental health profession, becoming a faculty member and supervisor at the National Institute for the Psychotherapies in New York, publishing papers in psychoanalytic inquiry, contemporary psychoanalysis, and psychoanalytic dialogues, and most recently publishing his book, Traumatic Narcissism, Relational Systems of Subjugation, for the Relational Perspective series which was nominated for the Distinguished Gradiva Award. In 2018, 
The International Cultic Studies Association awarded him the Margaret Thaler Singer Award for advancing the understanding of coercive persuasion and undue influence. Dan's book, Traumatic Narcissism and Recovery, Leaving the Prison of Shame and Fear, will be published by Rutledge in 2021. I'm excited to be able to read it. So Dan is here because we were schmoozing about what was happening in the world and after the inauguration and the storming of the Capitol and, and, and. We were going back and forth and I just said, hey, let's take this on the show. And I want people to be able to hear our conversation and Dan's wisdom on it. So here's Dan now. So I am very happy to have Dan Shaw with me today, and I have a feeling we're going to chat for a while. What I think is going to be good to do is to talk about your expertise. You've already been on the show twice talking about traumatic narcissism, and you're the author of books about it. And I want people to check out your books because they're really wonderful. And it's a complicated subject in that I think people just don't know what they're dealing with if they're not wired that way. And I was thinking also about at the second impeachment, there was someone who was in government who said, well, at least now, you know, Trump has learned his lesson. And I thought, you know nothing about this. So, you know, whether it was about Trump or anyone else, there was just this sense that you just don't understand that personality style if you think someone learned their lesson by being quote unquote punished. So Dan, if you want to introduce yourself and then we can take the conversation and maybe start with that. Sure. Thanks for having me, Rachel. I'm Dan Shaw, as Rachel has told you, and I am the author of Traumatic Narcissism, Relational Systems of Subjugation. And another book this year will come out, also published by Rutledge, called Traumatic Narcissism and Recovery. The subtitle of this one is Leaving the prison of shame and fear. Obviously, I've been talking to mental health practitioners about what I mean by traumatic narcissism, but I also talk to a lot of non-professionals who are in those situations. And what you've said about, uh, I think, I believe it was Susan Collins who said, well, you know, I think Trump has learned his lesson. I think she might have been disingenuous about that, actually, but many people might think that somebody who has a lifelong pattern, in this case, of criminal sociopathic narcissistic behavior, anyone who thinks that they're going to learn other than from being in jail, as Bernie Madoff is, for example, and even Bernie Madoff, you know, was asking Trump for a pardon, by the way. I, I'm glad to know that did not happen. But, you know, the most malignant narcissist is definitely overlapping with the sociopath, the psychopath. They believe themselves to be beyond any kind of ethical norm, beyond any kind of boundary. There's no boundary that they don't feel entitled to violate. And this stems from their delusion of their own omnipotence. They are these self-inflated imposters whose main goal, really their only agenda, is to prove to themselves and anyone who will listen that they are 
gods, that they are omnipotent, that they are superior in every way to everybody else. And what I have found is that it's important to understand the personality of this kind of person, either in order to prevent yourself from having your life taken over by somebody like that, or to release yourself from the grip of being involved with somebody like that. Understanding the personality and what, what's really involved there has been the focus that I took when I left the cult in 1994 after 13 years. And I knew why I had gotten involved. I could look at all my own vulnerabilities. It wasn't hard. You know, this in my family and that in my uh, employment and that in my relational world. There were tremendous vulnerabilities. But what I wanted to make sense of was, well, why is there this person who appears so uh, benign and, you know, allows thousands of people to worship her? My ex-guru was Guru Mai. And why are they actually, when you get to know them well enough, incredibly cruel and sadistic and selfish? What makes a person be like that? And, you know, in trying to make sense of that for myself, Little by little, it was um, almost 20 years later that I decided to develop the whole idea of the, the relational system of the traumatizing narcissist. Okay, so let's start with the terminology about traumatic narcissism. What's the trauma, right? Yeah, exactly. Obviously, it takes many shapes and forms. Each person has a slightly different story about that. But the first level of the trauma is that the the narcissist claims to be empowering you, claims to be leading you to your own self-empowerment of some kind or other, success, enlightenment, whatever it might be. And what you find out is that the price you're going to have to pay is to be completely disempowered, to be made completely dependent, and to be made completely unable to hold any sense of confidence or faith or trust in yourself. The narcissist is going to systematically disable your own subjectivity, your own sense of your own goodness, your sense of your uh, reliability. They are going to show you over and over how weak and how bad you are, because there's no other way, according to them, for you to reach this enlightenment than for me to point out how bad you are, and only I can help you to fix that. That's the narcissist. So to attack and dismember somebody's sense of self, their trust and faith in themselves, that's traumatizing. That's, that's the basic trauma. Mm -hmm. And then there's all the sadistic cruelty and the belittling, the th my three, uh, the trio of behaviors, belittling, intimidation, and humiliation. And those are the three behaviors that the narcissist employs on whoever the mark is or the target of their uh, attack. And why, why does the narcissist even do this stuff? Yes, that was going to be one of my questions about what the motivation is. I see the motivation this way. Of course, they're never going to speak themselves to this because as far as they're concerned, you're an idiot. They are superior and there's nothing wrong with them. It's all you. But what I believe is their motivation is that they are truly on the verge of 
some kind of chaotic, unstable collapse because they've been traumatized the way they were brought up. Usually, I think, extremely humiliated at some point in their earlier life. And their solution is to become shameless. If they were brought up to be shamed and humiliated constantly, uh, you know, some people would become very depressed. But these people become shameless. That's the antidote. I'm going to, I'm going to triumph over everything and everyone that made me feel small by developing this delusion that I am omnipotent, shameless, entitled to anything and everything that I want. And in order to sustain this delusion, they have to have all of the shame for them. You know, I'm not going to acknowledge any kind of shame or weakness or vulnerability or dependence in me, but I'm going to have a lot of people around me who are full of shame and dependence and weakness and vulnerability. And that's the solution to the narcissist's problem, which is how do I constantly maintain this desperately needed sense of my own perfection? Okay. So as you describe it from someone who's not wired that way, that sounds exhausting. Well, this is why they drive everyone around them insane. But they don't seem exhausted. They seem fine. There are times that I will have a sense when people come into my office and now on Zoom, well, one person looks exhausted and depleted and they haven't had a chance to shower and they haven't eaten breakfast, their bags under their eyes. The other one is perfectly polished and everything's fine. And I think, oh, here, here we go. Here we go. There's this parasitic quality, right? Someone's feeding off of their energy. But here, as you describe just that constant need, I would need to nap, seriously nap, if that were something that was on my mind all the time. But the, the narcissist seems to be not depleted, almost kind of energized by that pursuit. How do you understand that? Dracula. You know, Dracula is dead and lives in a coffin until nighttime when he can suck blood and be fully alive. And I think the metaphor is appropriate. The parasite is correct. And the thing about a parasite, you know, in nature is that it feeds off the host body until the host body is completely depleted. And then it lays its eggs in the, in the corpse. And narcissists are quite similar. Once they have totally uh, abused and depleted one target, they move on to the next quickly. They need to keep feeding off of people in that way, depositing their own toxins in other people. And that's what keeps them going. And there's something about the urgency of this need to constantly reinforce their own superiority. You would think it would be exhausting, but the fact that they can make others exhausted, that they can feed off of others and deplete others, that seems to keep them young. The truth is, though, that many of these uh, famous gurus that, you know, Rajneesh and so on, they basically become drug addicts of one kind or another. You know, they live on various drug cocktails. They don't have to do anything for themselves. Their slaves do everything for them. And when they make their public appearances, they, you know, they can do themselves up. But the truth is, in private, they are often really like Dracula while he's in the coffin more than when he's out. Right. And you were saying that there's an overlap with um, sociopathy. So maybe if you can 
detail, even though I know you've already said something just about how people treat others and that they don't care about the other, but some examples that you've seen of that, where there really is that overlap, because sometimes people will ask, I'm sure they ask you a lot, what's the difference? Well, with the sociopath um, has narcissistic tendencies and the narcissist has the, the, the further out on the spectrum of narcissism you get, the more you get sociopathy, sociopathy tendencies. And, and, you know, what that means is that literally no conscience, no empathy, and uh, a willingness to uh, exploit and abuse at the, at the worst level that will be, um, you know, commit crimes. And, um, you know, in a household, bad narcissist, let's say one of the parents, they probably won't commit crimes, but the crimes are relational and emotional. The crimes usually take place in their own families with their own children. They probably appear to be pillars of the community in their place of work. That's often the case of this kind of garden variety narcissist. And they probably won't commit criminal acts. They might even be you know, church going or liberal progressives or who, or, you know, volunteer for Habitat of Humanity. It's in the privacy of their home, usually with their own children, that you see the cruelty. But the worst kind of narcissist puts it out on display. And we have had four and a half, five years of the worst kind of narcissist putting it all on display, not even hiding anything. Donald Trump never hid his hatred, his racism, his misogyny, his cruelty, his avarice and greed, his spite, his envy. He never hid it. And it was his brand. And it was how he recruited millions of people who suddenly felt like, yeah, now I don't have to pretend anymore about all these people I hate. And Donald gives me uh, you know, a free ride to go ahead and hate as much as I want to. And I'm justified because he's God. I mean, so many evangelical Christians were worship, have been worshiping him. Now, I don't mean to pick on Christians. And I have dear friends who are like believers. And I read the Sermon on the Mount. It's beautiful. I love it. But what's happened in, in today's Christianity is, is it goes hand in hand with what has happened in the whole Trump phenomenon. And it's scary. That is scary. So what have you seen? What are the changes? Well, you know, when I got out of the cult, it was 1994, and I had been there 13 years. So I, you know, I, I turned my brain back on, started like paying attention to the world around me. And one of the things I started seeing right away then was the religious right, the moral... Moral majority, yeah. And evangelicals getting involved in government in this way and that way and the other. And I, I thought to myself, this is so bad. At that point, they were still, you know, you could still think of them as being on the fringe. But I saw the way they were trying to get into, they were trying to make their brand of Christianity, which I call Taliban Christianity, they were trying to make that brand of Christianity, the misogyny, the authoritarianism, actual law, the law of the land. They were trying to put it in the Supreme Court, in the Congress, and they were trying to get a president. And they thought they had that president in Trump. 
you know, and he knew how to exploit them and give them whenever they wanted. Uh, you know, he's the least possible Christian you could ever imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have to list all of the, the criminal and sadistic behavior and the predatory behavior, predatory sexually and predatory monetarily. And yet he knew what they wanted and he gave it to them. And millions of evangelical Christians decided this is our guy. And then, of course, QAnon comes along and then it's, it's some supernatural power that is going to end pedophilia uh, perpetrated by liberals, Jews, and people in Hollywood. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. So everybody could find a place in this Trump world for their hatred and for their paranoia. Um, I feel like we are going to be uh, unpacking this and dealing with it for, I don't know, quite a while, quite a while to come. You know, one of the things that always blows me away is how much they get away with it, even when it isn't hidden, and how other people who do things or have minor, you know, infractions or whatever else is front page news and they're skewered for it or they lose their position because of it. But Trump and others like him can do things and uh, that are so mm, bold and uh, and also just all the people, all the women who have come forward and workers who were never paid by him for decades. And so how does this personality get away with it so well? And why do we give them a pass in this way? Is it just that they're setting so many fires so often every day that then you get kind of exhausted or they threaten people who go after them and what is it that makes them have this sort of i don't know it's like a deflection zone around them right uh, atrocity fatigue we get we get atrocity fatigue right well you make me think of al franken i don't know if this will be entirely popular with all your listeners but i think al franken was set up yeah now al franken may have uh been guilty of some misbehavior but uh, that's not who he was. And he was railroaded very quickly to resigning his position. And uh, he spoke later of the fact of how profoundly depressed he became, that he went on medication. He was in therapy, has been for a while now. And um, whereas Donald Trump has, I don't know, 18 rape uh, accusations, uh, more than that, I think, and all of the other crimes that we all should know about if we don't already and and yet uh experiences no shame no remorse no guilt none well it's that very mania so this is another psychology word you know this maniacal way of being him where any uh kind of shame is absolutely denied disavowed and where any kind of accusation is immediately fought with every under-the-belt weapon he can get. It's that invincible mania that attracts followers. Eric Fromm said this a long time ago about the world's most notorious dictators, that they have a basic psychotic core. And I, I agree. The psychosis is that they are omnipotent and subject to no kinds of norms or boundaries or ethics. That's their psychosis. And it's that psychosis and its flamboyance that is so attractive 
to people who are seeking to be aligned with the powerful, with the mighty, with the bold and brave and fearless. You know, you mistake shamelessness, which is a, a very severe pathology, with being brave and fearless. And uh, of course, they're not in anywhere near the same, you know, because a brave and fearless person is actually not fearless. They're actually full of fear, but they're brave enough to go ahead and do what they need to do because they believe in it. A shameless person has no fear because they're psychotic. Right. I love these quotables already, the atrocity fatigue and the invincible mania. Those are good ones. You're a good wordsmith. And it's true. There is something very sexy about it for a lot of people. And for others, I mean, I guess people have a strong reaction to it in either direction because for some, it is so repellent. And for others, yeah, it really draws them in. People will have a reaction, whatever it is. I wonder about those of us who are repelled. We can't all have been ex-cult members. So, the, so, you know, those who are repelled have some powerful alliance with the idea of justice and with the idea of persecution being unjust. You know, even though I got into a cult in my 30s, or the whole decade pretty much, when I grew up, my parents were not religious, were Jewish, but not religious. But the movies that I remember most vividly watching on television, because they were all on television back then, were the World War II movies. And I get chills and start to tear up just thinking about seeing La Marseillaise in Casablanca, for example, you know, in the face of the Nazis. So there are people, whether it's from a Judaic background in, rem in remembrance of the Holocaust, or whether it's African-Americans in remembrance of slavery, there are people, and whether it's just people who have that kind of empathy without having a connection themselves directly to some sort of persecution, people feel powerfully enraged and, and appalled by injustice. And then other people can't see it, cannot see it. And, uh, you know, I believe that when you're raised by a highly narcissistic person, you can go either of those ways. You can become a hyper empathic and kind of depressive person until you get help to believe in yourself because that's what's been battered in you. Or you can emulate the narcissist and just, you know, go hard with narcissism. Yeah, I was going to actually ask about that. So I want to come back to that about people raised in the same household and why one turns out one way, one turns out the other. And I want to, I do want to ask you about that. I think, yes. So you don't have to be a former cult member to find people like Trump's behavior awful and triggering. Uh, it's all too familiar. Not only is it, I think when people have had those experiences or dealt with fascist regimes and dealt with, right, have yeah, the Holocaust as part of their family history, whatever it is, uh, genocide, you know, Rwandan genocide, all of it. Not only, I think, do people get the chills from watching the leader, but watching the people who are watching the leader, who are enamored, who will do what he says, who will cheer when he cheers or when he wants them to. And that's also, very, I actually just got goosebumps while I'm talking about that, it is chilling. It's scary. That's the scary part, the exponential part. It is. I, I agree. And I feel like that's our national problem right now, 
is the, the extent of delusional indoctrination that has taken place. I mean, indoctrination into delusion has, has been so big. And right now, Fox News, they just fired all the regular newscasters or most of them because they want to go harder on, on, their, on their propaganda. You know, they feel like they're losing their audience, the Newsmax or OANN. We're going to go harder on propaganda, as they've decided. And uh, I mean, that is so influential in this country. There are people who want to keep the lie going. There are people who want to keep the war going because they benefit from the war. Oh, yeah. It's profiteering. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I don't know who was more upset, you know, the QAnon members when, uh, you know, the inauguration happened or the news media or people who market, who make QAnon T-shirts or who sell generators to preppers. You know, just everyone is profiting from the paranoia, from the influence, from the division, from the war, from the sense that we're all being lied to. We need to band together. It is scary to see the masses. I always think of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. You know, the assassins killed Caesar and everybody loved Brutus. Uh, But Mark Anthony came out to give the speech. And Mark Anthony, the mob, uh, you know, doesn't want to hear what he has to say because, you know, he's, he's connected to Caesar. So he starts to praise Brutus, but Brutus is an honorable man. And the, the sarcasm and the irony of it in that one scene, that whole mass crowd, you know, that one minute was on uh, Brutus's side, turns, and all of a sudden they're going to go after Brutus and kill him. And, and that kind of, you know, Freud talked about group psychology, the sociologists, Weber, famously talks about this. When we see in our own country the rise of a fascist part of the country that that is at least 30% of the population, I don't know how not to be afraid of that. Right. Because it doesn't connect with actual events or logic, there isn't a predictable trajectory. And so knowing that anything could happen at any time also, I think, keeps people on edge, which can cause kind of a national exhaustion, and rightfully so. I mean, I and I, there are some people who kind of predicted that it was going to get very bad with Trump in office. I'm raising my hand. Right? I know. I was sort of hoping that uh, Hillary had a T-shirt on at the inauguration that said, I told you so. I mean, you can't predict exactly what's going to happen, but you know it's going to be a mess. It's just going to be a mess. Because there is this wreckage that's left by these tornadoes who blow through town, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know the trajectory of this kind of person. And the worst case scenario, Jim Jones, David Koresh, we've seen all of that. There are others that are less famous. And then, of course, uh, Keith Raniere, the most recent. You know, what was going to happen after he branded his initials into women's pubic area. What was going to, what was the next level going to be there? Right. Um, cannibalism maybe, you know, uh, but that, but the, the, the thing is there is a trajectory that the more power they get, the more insane they become. And the way we saw Trump leave, 
Uh, today, it turns out that right before he left, he fired the head usher of the White House. This is just a, a working class job with so much responsibility to take care of the occupants of the White House. So before Biden could move in, fired the usher, the head usher, right? Um, I hope that gets rectified. But he did everything in his power that he could think of to undermine his successor. And right up until the end, he never admitted that the election was really uh, fair. He never admitted that. And as a result, our, our, you know, uh, representatives in the House are carrying firearms into Congress. And of course, on the 6th, I was on an airplane all, that whole day uh, coming home from visiting my son, glued to the uh, audio stream uh, uh, that I was listening to of the events as they unfolded. You know, how many, uh, we're lucky only five people died. It could have been so many more, so many more. This is the trajectory of the malignant narcissist. They will not go away without really serious destructiveness. Right. And so I'm curious about that. It makes me think of another question here. What can stop them? Is there anything? Uh, because it, it seems that, you know, if they find there's a roadblock in one area, they'll find another route and convince someone to help them out who has that authority or pay someone off or whatever so that they can find another route. But is there anything that's been known to actually stop a narcissist from doing what they would be wanting to do? I'll tell you, Rachel, um, you and I are both psychotherapists. And to, I'm sure at some point, I haven't seen a lot of it, but you, you probably have seen some, I, maybe more than I, you've seen uh, domestic abuse. And um, what we know about that is that those guys usually the guys, there's also women who are yeah, perpetrators, definitely. but mm -hmm. let's just go with guys for this purpose of this. Those guys don't stop until the law stops them, until they are uh, restrained by the law, mandated by the law. And as, uh, as we know, if we study this at all, even with the law there to stop them, many of them end up murdering their partner. Mm. Many of the domestic violence abusers, the women who are trying to use the police and the courts to stop the abuse, many of them get killed by the abuser. So that's what I thought of when you asked me that question. What stops this narcissist? Only prison. Bernie Madoff is not, you know, destroying people's lives only because he's in prison. And there was a, a, a television bio of him that uh, Robert De Niro portrayed him. And there was a reporter who got friendly with him and talked to him and for the Times and interviewed him a lot. And the movie of Bernie Madoff, the swindler who, uh, you know, who invested hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in the complete fraud and was finally arrested after many, many people lost all their money. Everything, yeah. He, in real life, actually was talking to this reporter and she mentioned the word psychopath and he looked at her and he said, you don't think I'm a psychopath, do you? That was, the, that was the last line of the movie with De Niro. It's excellent. And this is why they have to be put in jail. Because they will not stop priming until they cannot literally 
do it. I mean, either they're dead or in jail. And even, you know, mob bosses from behind bars were still priming. I mean, it's not funny, but geez, can you imagine the, the, the sickness within that compels you to like not stop hurting and destroying until the very last possible breath you can take? Right. I mean, a lot of people talk about even David Miscavige, you know, with Scientology, that it's just constant badgering and abuse and, 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 and also he doesn't get stopped. And yeah. And, and his, his misdeeds are highly publicized at this point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. But he has friends in the LA police apparently. And he has, uh, you know, he has power. Mm-hmm. And um, this is what we saw with the with the insurrection on the sixth last week. Apparently, members of the police in high places were um, accomplices. I mean, this has yet to be proven. I hope it all comes out. But criminals get away with what they. Donald Trump got away with crime for decades in New York because he was treated like you know uh, that that. Yeah, he's crooked, but he's, you know, he's colorful. What if he had really had to pay for his crimes before he ever ran for president, right? I think if you have a felony conviction, you cannot run to be president. I was also afraid when there was the first impeachment and nothing happened. And I thought, oh, no, Uh, that's just going to create more of this entitled monster in him. And it absolutely did. Yeah. I mean, people don't realize they're playing with fire when they threaten to have there be a consequence and they don't follow through. It really does make someone just feel like the world is their oyster and they can do whatever they want because so far they have been able to. I mean, they have proof of that. Uh, They didn't make that up. Right. So I'm wondering also just about what makes a person like this. You had mentioned in the past that some people go on to be very different because of their narcissistic parents than a Donald Trump. So what makes Trump that way when maybe a sibling, I mean, Mary Trump talked a little bit about different family personalities and, you know, all from the same source. Well, I I suppose there are some intangibles that are biological that we can't exactly know, but say one sibling takes after the less narcissistic parent and the other one takes after the more. But I do think that that's kind of a a crapshoot because probably, well, I think it's clear that uh, Trump's siblings were equally abused, but he took on the delusion of omnipotence as his response. And the other, I think Mary Trump's father is, is his brother, right? He was depressive. He became the depressive and he was considered weak and he was scorned and he was um, despised by Fred Trump, the father. I guess that has something to do with the nature of the person. It could have been two depressives. It could have been one depressive that couldn't get back up and another one that recovered. But you got a depressive that couldn't recover, the sons of Fred Trump, and you got Donald the absolute epitome of the malignant narcissist. And I, we're very lucky that we just got him out of office just by a hair, really. 
and that the Senate has a has a non-Republican majority just by a hair. Because the whole, the whole Republican Party, uh, again, I'm sorry for those who are listening that may disagree, but in my view, uh, I don't think there's anybody in the Republican Party, and I'm going to include Mitt Romney, who hasn't, to some extent, decided that the end justifies the means. The end justifies the means is what happens in every cult situation and every... Uh, you know, all, all the members of a cult come to believe that the leader's goal, let's say it's to uh, destroy the ashram of the rival guru, that there's an end, there's a higher moral purpose, and so the end justifies the means. I'm afraid that's where the GOP is right now, and uh, that is a very dangerous situation. I'm so grateful to Dan Shaw for his friendship and for being able to have a colleague that I can share ideas with and uh, learn with and learn from, and someone also who is doing so much to educate people around the world about what narcissism does to a relationship, what it can do to a community what it can do to a whole country. I want to talk a little bit about something that Dan spoke about today. I mean, there were many things that he talked about. There was this idea of an invisible mania. So, you know, there are a lot of times that I talk to people who will tell me something bad is about to happen or they know they can sense it or they were told And I will say, how do you know? And they'll say, because, because I was told that, or because people within my community just know it, or there are signs, there are signs of it. And there are always going to be signs if you're looking for them. And so I want to be able to talk about this idea of invisible mania. It's the thing that actually makes people crazy when they're talking to others who believe in something that has not been proven, that can't be proven, that hasn't been seen, but that people just say they know, and it's an absolute. And so how do you fight with that? It's something that happens a lot where when we're busy kind of working hard, to get what we need to protect ourselves, to shore our lives up and ourselves up against kind of an imaginary threat. What happens in our lives, though, is that then we ignore the real threats. We get distracted by the imaginary ones, depleted and exhausted. And there's also a lot of irony. And what I mean by irony is, that I talk to a lot of people who will tell me that they no longer can relate to their families, to their spouses, to their children, to their parents, because they're trying so hard to protect the world from some threat, from, you know, child endangerment, human trafficking, child trafficking, 
sex rings, whatever sort of the QAnon ideas are and other conspiratorial theories that the end of the world is coming and that there's this idea that they have to really protect themselves and the world against this damage. The problem is that they have become so singularly focused and singularly minded that the one-note samba that has become them and the aggressive one-note samba makes it very hard to spend time with them. And they have been insulting to their families and they have been dismissive of any kind of counter-argument that their family or loved ones have. They've gotten divorces over these things. They have had people fall out of their lives who were integral pieces and parts of their lives. So in actuality, and here's the irony, they are causing damage in order to stick with this idea that they're trying to protect themselves and the world against some other damage that hasn't yet happened and that may never happen. So they're ignoring the evidence around them. They're ignoring what's happening in real time to focus in on what could potentially happen at another time. And so what I want people to be able to do is to talk to each other about what's happening before them, that here in your attempt to save me and protect me, you are being so aggressive or violent or insulting that you're actually pushing me away, but you're destroying what we have in an attempt to save me from something that I haven't yet seen and you haven't yet seen as a real threat. We also then focus kind of on what we see as the seemingly urgent. And then we don't focus on what's important. And there are a lot of things that are presented as seemingly urgent. There's so much news out there and it's so constant. And the internet is so wrought with and fraught with so much information, again, that is constant, that I think in order to get people's attention now, you have to sound urgent. You have to make it seem like all is going to be lost on less, sort of this looming threat. And so then people will focus on it. But again, it's only seemingly urgent. And so because it draws people in with such intensity, people don't then feel like it's safe or right to abandon this new information, to take a step back and to actually see if it's a real threat or it's an actual threat. And to be able to also see if there's something that you can do to maybe defend against it or protect yourself from it mm, that is actual and not just kind of made up as part of the story or is kind of manufactured by the people who manufacture things, meaning people who manufacture ideas or people who manufacture objects that they want you to buy in order to protect yourself from this perceived threat. Everyone benefits from you being panicked, except for you. There's something important that happens, though, when you get panicked, is that 
you stay in this heightened sense of hyperarousal, being hypervigilant, and then things do look like signs. And you will be so frustrated with other people who are just going about their day because you will think that their kind of usual way of going about their day is being laissez-faire or is being closed-minded or that they're just not getting it. You perceive that the house is on fire. It's not, but you perceive it. And you don't know why everyone is still just sitting at the kitchen table having dinner. So I understand why you're yelling, but I want you to be able to take a step back and really look and see, do you smell smoke? Do you see fire? Or was it just that you were told that the house is on fire? There is this idea of tilting at windmills. It comes from Miguel de Cervantes in his early 17th century novel, Don Quixote. And it's based on the kind of romantic and ill-thought-out actions of the story's hero of the same name, Don Quixote. He believed that he was attacking these imaginary enemies, that the windmills were giants, were giants that were making him feel threatened. And at the time, he was seen as not well, as crazy. The problem is now that tilting at windmills has become commonplace. QAnon, this idea also of blood being extracted from children, very much like the blood libel that was so much a part of the death of so many Jews, where people believed that they were taking blood out of Christian children to make some of the things that were part of their ceremonies, which, of course, as I've mentioned before, would make them not kosher, because when you have something that's kosher, it can't have any blood in it. So the whole idea doesn't make any sense. But back to things that are not logical. You also have this idea, again, that immigrants are a threat that they're going to be taking away your jobs, that slaves are a threat, which blows my mind. And so you have manipulators who cause drama and infighting among people, this very much kind of us versus them or them really versus us mentality. This cultivation of warring factions serves the people who benefit from the conflict. And from the distraction, the conflict creates so they can do things without people noticing. They light constant fires. They cause what Dan Shaw was talking about as atrocity fatigue. They throw these sort of shiny objects, actually more like bombs, over here and over there just to get people to not notice what they're doing behind the scenes. Whenever there was a lot happening in the world at a given time, even in our recent government, I thought, uh-oh, it's just a way to distract people. And by the end of the day, rights were taken away from a whole group of people or something happened where funding was taken away. No one noticed because there were so many other things to suddenly notice. 
I remember one time speaking to a magician who brought me as a guest to a place called the Magic Castle in California. And he was letting me know that he likes to watch other magicians to see how they do what they do. And he will look the other way, meaning when a magician wants people to be distracted from what they're doing, they will cause the audience to look at something else, to look at their hands as opposed to wherever else they're doing their trick, or look at their face, or look at their assistant, or look at the other things on the stage that are suddenly kind of distracting or sexy or something else. But a magician knows where to look and where not to be distracted to look. And we want to be able to know where we should look and to not be distracted by people who are purposely getting us to look away. The problem is that when you are just like watching a magic trick happen, you're in a spell, you're drawn in. And all of these things cause people to feel kind of under a spell. You want to step away when someone is getting you kind of into an idea and you don't know if it's real or not, but it's very dramatic and it has a lot of energy behind it and a lot of urgency. Take a step back. Look at the teachings. See why you're being taught that. See where that idea comes from. See if there is anything to back it up. And certainly do this before you act in line with this idea. Plenty of people get themselves into a lot of trouble and go against their conscience at times and do that in order to feel that they're doing good things because they feel like they have to do this to save the world, to save the people around them, to save their families, to save themselves. And you want to know that if you're going to go ahead and do that, it needs to be for a good reason, the right reason, a real reason. We can all be pushed again to tilt at windmills. J.D. Salinger once said, all you have to do is say something nobody understands and they'll do practically anything you want them to. It's a scary but very true thought. So again, make sure before you spend your energy assuming that there are forces at play that need you to defend yourself or need you to kind of conquer other people or suddenly hate other people or distrust other people, get proof. Look outside for proof. Make sure to take your time. Make sure that you're not doing something because you are under somebody else's influence. Make sure that it makes sense to you. And if a group won't let you have that time to take some time away and do your research, know that there's a reason. Know it's because they want you to keep and need you to keep your blinders on because that's the only way they can get you to do what they want you to do because it serves them. So before you go out to do something because of a cause, make sure that it's logical and provable, especially before you create any harm to yourself or to others. Stay safe out there. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's Radio Public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. 
So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.